0: Call me cranky, Jim, but I have a problem with books, movies, and moral arguments that try to instruct me on how to think that there's one clear solution to a problem and only one way to react.
2: Well, you're not the only one, Richard. I mean, you know, it's so tempting to look at everything wrong in the world and say, it can all be explained by this one thing, this one idea i mean that's where you get a lot of conspiracy theories or overarching dogmatic political systems like marxism and it's it's really attractive to people and but that's also why i love doing the show with you because we're aimed at something different embracing nuance being willing to delve into these issues without looking for simple solutions
0: promoting diversity defending free speech with amna khalid
3: What I would say is, through all my journeys, what I've come to realize is that people are individuals. They're more than any category that you can fit them into. If we begin to really engage with people as individuals, we'll do a far better job of diversity and inclusion.
0: Our show is about fixes.
3: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we
1: fix
2: fix
3: it? it?
1: How do we fix it?
2: In our 300th episode of How Do We Fix It a couple of weeks ago, we featured part of an interview with Claire Kane Miller, who writes about gender in the workplace for The New York Times. And she told us that most training sessions aimed at reducing sexual harassment and gender discrimination were actually not working. They failed to change workplace culture.
0: So is the same thing true about anti-racism training? Is critical race theory working as a way to think about racism? We look at this from the perspective of a prominent educator and someone who was disappointed and surprised by what she discovered when she started teaching in the U.S. about a decade ago.
2: Amna Khalid is an associate professor of history at Carleton College. Growing up under a series of military dictatorships in Pakistan, she became a passionate advocate for free speech, diversity of opinion, and academic freedom.
0: Amna writes and speaks frequently about these issues at academic conferences. She joins us today from Northfield, Minnesota. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Amna, let's start with your personal story. You grew up in a country that didn't have freedom of speech, Pakistan. And after living in England and South Africa, you came here to the U.S., Why?
3: For me, my entire journey from Pakistan to the U.S. has been about having the space to test out ideas, to speak freely, to think freely. But universities in the West have always been, in my mind, the places where you have that freedom. So that's the assumption I came with. But very quickly, I found it a little disturbing to see what was happening on campuses.
0: This was not just an interest of yours, but a passion, because you grew up in a military dictatorship where there was no freedom.
3: That is correct. I grew up under a series of military dictatorships, and I really came to age in the era when Salman Rushdie's book, Satanic Verses, was banned. And there were all these riots in Pakistan, in fact, very close to where I live, protesting the publication of that book. And at that moment, the ways in which uh, Britain and the US stood up for freedom of expression was really an ideal for me. It, it So I came of age in that moment. And that in part is why I looked to these places, as places of free inquiry.
2: And yet, not too long after you got here, you began to have some concerns for free inquiry, open debate in an academic setting. What what was it that, that caught your attention?
3: So initially, when I came here, I came here in 2011. And a couple of years after that, I started hearing this word from my students, it's trigger warnings. And they wanted trigger warnings on readings and materials that I was assigning. And it really it was new to me. I, I thought maybe this is an American thing um, and I was trying to grapple with it. But very quickly, it turned from that into a discussion of bias response teams that um, that came up across the U.S. on campuses in 2016 and 2017. And our college was considering having one. And I had no idea what these things are. I yeah, think.
0: what 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 are they?
3: So they're these teams of um, usually administrators and sometimes have student members on them as well, and they monitor bias incidents on campus. They're very problematic because who gets to define bias is one of the biggest problems that we encounter with such a framework. Um, and then those inv- those incidents are investigated. In certain cases, they're punitive measures. So what should be an educational moment turns into um, a moment of punishment and silencing.
0: And what was your reaction?
3: So when I was first introduced to this, I was horrified. I remember sitting in that town hall in on my own um, campus and literally the hairs on the back of my neck were standing. And I thought, I just traveled halfway across the world to get away from this kind of policing and silencing of thought. And here I am where some arbitrary committee is proposing to adjudicate on what biases and then to meet out um, consequences in light of their definition of that bias. I was gobsmacked by how pervasive this problem is across campuses in the U.S. And I I really was not expecting that. And that is what spurred my interest in kind of advocating for free expression, especially on university campuses, because that is an absolute essential in order for us to have open inquiry.
2: You mentioned that trigger warnings are a concern for you. Tell us more about why they're troubling in an academic setting where students are being asked to learn about new concepts, new ideas.
3: They anticipate trauma, and in the name of that, are asking for people to close down certain topics of discussion. So I'm all for I'm all for making accommodations that allow for opening conversation, but these are ways that are being used to shut down conversation trigger warnings really are not about post-traumatic stress disorder as much as they're about pre-traumatic stress disorder. It's in anticipation of the trauma that will be caused.
0: But this is not to say that bias isn't a problem. And it's not to say that students and others shouldn't be aware that there are hateful comments, that there is racism, that we all should be aware of. so how do we move forward knowing that there are that there are problems, that there is a lot of hate out there?
3: Absolutely. and I, I agree with you, there is a lot of hate out there. there is racism, racism is real. So on the record, I, I'm not denying that. I just think the approach we're taking towards dealing with it is not a very helpful approach. One, it's not one that promotes resilience. and two, it's not one that really allows us to deal with these issues in a nuanced and complicated fashion. When we flatten all inequity and see it from the lens of race and then propose to deal with it through through things like anti-racist training, anti-racism training, we are really trying to simplify what is a very complex and deeply embedded problem trying to use the wrong tool to deal with it. So it's like using a pickaxe for something that requires a whole set of construction tools, and you're trying to fix the problem with the pickaxe alone. All you're going to do is create more damage in the process of doing this.
2: What you're talking about, the the mindset you're talking about is often bundled under the term critical race theory. And for people who aren't really immersed in it, it might sound like, well, what's wrong with just being sensitive? What's wrong with understanding about race and being sensitive to other people's points of view and and avoiding harmful speech? If you put it that way, it sounds very innocuous.
3: It is critical race theory that I'm referring to. Now, just to be clear, I'm not against critical race theory. I also don't support the kind of legislation that is being put forward in certain states like Florida where they're trying to eradicate um, and legislate against the teaching of critical race theory. I think critical race theory is um, a very useful framework. I think it's allowed us to see things that we were not paying attention to before. However, I contest the idea that it should be the only framework through which we understand the inequities in society.
0: What is critical race theory?
3: Critical race theory is a framework that looks at social problems through a particular lens where it says that most of them are embedded in structural racism. So racism, for instance, is inherent in social structures. And in order to root it out, what we need to do is reform the structures themselves. Now, that in itself is not a bad idea. But if we reduce everything to race, and boil it down to just that one lens through which we will see inequity. In the process, what we're doing is races yet again. And what I mean by essentializing is that we are seeing particular races as having fixed traits. Now, once you start going down the route of seeing races as having fixed traits, You're wading into very troubled waters because you're going to start reifying and reinforcing the differences between races, which is at the heart of the problem that you're trying to solve, which is racism. You don't change hearts and minds by telling people what to think. You do that by having conversations and by modeling certain behaviors, especially for young uh, students. The fact that this is becoming the dominant discourse on university and college campuses is deeply troubling because there is a short window in your life when you are so open and impressionable and so eager to learn. It bothers me that we are using that moment, that very special moment in young people's lives, to to do something that is frankly damaging the ways in which we can talk about these issues.
2: One thing that's often demanded when, when students... Uh, uh, confront their college administrations for a stronger anti-racist program is various kinds of training.
3: The dominant approach right now in all kinds of institutions in the U.S. to, to signal that they're dealing with this problem is to institute these kinds of trainings. And um, what's troubling to me is that all the evidence that we have, and we have plenty of it, clearly shows that these trainings are not only just ineffective, so they're not just benign. In many cases, they can actually be damaging and more divisive, precisely because they use these kinds of techniques where you have to kind of, people are forced to say what stereotypes they hold. They actually create more division and perpetuate precisely the stereotypes that they're trying to undermine.
0: So these training sessions, well-intentioned as they are, don't work?
3: I stand against them. There is no substitute for education. And it is through education and learning that we tackle these problems. One of the issues that I find in the U.S., um, I feel I can now be a critic of the U.S. because now I am an American citizen and it's my adopted home, um, is that we're always looking for a quick fix. We're always looking for like a drive-through version of something so that we can get it. It's the instant Nescafe version of diversity that we want. The true value of diversity is that you are able to sit together and look at things from different perspectives. It so happens that people who look different, so demographic diversity tends to go in line with viewpoint diversity or with you know um, welcoming different points of view. But demographic diversity in itself does not guarantee it. So you can have people who look very different, but who think exactly the same way, in which case we've really not capitalized on the true value of diversity.
0: In theory, I think diversity training is a really good idea. I think that that having some form of, of education which encourages people to look at others who are not like them through a different lens is, is a really smart idea. It seems, though, that these programs aren't working. They're not helping people be more tolerant or more understanding or more empathetic or kinder to one another, which, after all, is what they're aiming to be.
3: Correct. In theory, it's a good idea. The trouble is that training is not the solution for this. What you need is sustained education. There isn't a simple formula, right? I think educational institutions should be putting their heads together using the deep and very weighty intellectual capital that they have on their own campuses to frame curriculum and conversation on campuses that are specific to their local contexts and that capitalize on the knowledge that exists on campuses. So training, unfortunately, you know, this is coming from the corporate world where you know you get a training and training is very good. It's very good if you're trying to do CPR. I'm glad we have people who get that training. It's very good if you're trying to learn how to use Zoom. But this is not a formulaic problem that you can solve by a standard procedure. So the idea and the intentions are good, but the evidence clearly shows that it doesn't work.
2: Even aside from the fact that it doesn't work, it, it symbolizes an approach to the individual that is in some ways disempowering of their, of their ability to reason and, and make moral judgments, right? I mean, is that why you see it as inappropriate for a college campus?
3: It is, I think it's dogmatic and anything that is dogmatic is a problem towards open inquiry and thinking. So my problem with this is that it's doctrinaire. It tells you what to do. It doesn't encourage you to explore different ways of doing it. I do think there are some other models for training that are out there that may be very useful. I'll give you an example, and I believe you've had her on your show. Chloe Valdry has a really fascinating way of thinking about diversity. She's got the theory of enchantment which really builds on the idea of common humanity and love as opposed to being divisive, that provides an alternative. So if you're going to put an alternative like that in the shape of training on the table, I'm willing to go along.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're speaking with Amna Khalid. More coming up. But first, a word about a show from the Democracy Group Podcast Network. We're part of this network of 15 podcasts.
4: Hello, my name is Justin Kemp, and I am the host of Democracy Paradox. It's yet another podcast from the Democracy Group. Look, you're probably wondering what sets my podcast apart. Well, I'm not a journalist, and I'm not an academic. I just read a lot, and I have the most fascinating conversations with some of the brightest minds about topics like civil resistance, democratization, and polarization. Try downloading just one episode. Go to democracyparadox.com or look for Democracy Paradox on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: I think one of the most interesting and intriguing things you've said is the most fruitful area when it comes to diversity training is education, as opposed to a fixed curriculum where there's only one agreed outcome. I may react differently, and I'm sure I would, than Jim. Uh, in in how we we respond to something.
3: Richard, you've hit on something that I think get, goes to the heart of um, what it is. What, what do we really get when we have different points of view, right? And when, like you said, Jim might react differently from you. And in those conversations that Jim and you may have is where the space for innovation and creativity lies. And that's where we can expand our minds and extend our own limits, challenge ourselves. That's how good ideas come to the table. So, yes, something that is prescriptive and that shuts down conversation for me is anti-educational.
2: And we see that in books like Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, which very specifically says that if anyone argues against her interpretation of uh, structural racism, that in itself is proof of their own racism. So we have here that it's not just an an educational framework, it's a moral framework.
3: That's one of the, um, how should I say it, beauties of this framework and the appeal of it is that even when it's failing, it's right, right? So it's it's failure becomes the success itself. So I've actually uh, recently been sitting in on some anti-racism trainings uh, as an ethnographer to get a sense of what they do. And I find it fascinating that they say things like, Well, you might not learn something by the end of it. You might feel that nothing has come of it, but that's part of the process. And you just need to continue going on this journey of becoming an anti-racist. Now, I can't imagine any parent agreeing to pay an institution where a professor can walk into a class and say, hey, by the way, at the end of this course, you might not learn anything." But that's okay. That's part of the process of your education. This is why this kind of framework is fundamentally flat and ineffective. What are these
2: training sessions like? Can you describe what it's like for a student or even somebody in business to to walk into one of these anti-bias training
3: sessions? So um, often there are many, many activities. Sometimes these things are um, done over multiple sessions and they'll begin by introducing the history of race in the u.s and it's a very kind of quick spin of the history of the u.s which is very flat sees everything through race and then it goes on to talk about things like microaggressions stereotypes Um, often you'll hear about bystander training and they teach you how to intervene in a situation that you feel is uh, one where racism is being enacted or is implicit. Um, then there's stuff about implicit bias and how to identify it and how to root it out. Again, all the studies on this show that implicit bias training, uh, are, it's ineffective. There is no actual foundation to that kind of work, no intellectual foundation.
2: So what's it like for the student? I mean, are they supposed to say things and, and respond and answer questions?
3: Yes. So um, for the person taking the training, there will be activities like, you know, there's something called the privilege walk, uh, take two steps forward. If you are brown and um, come from so-and-so part of the city, take five steps forward if you are white. And and so then by the, looking at how many steps someone has taken forward, you kind of assess their privilege. There's stuff like that. Then there are activities where you have to uh, voice your deep seated, what you believe are implicit biases that you carry, and you kind of share them. It's kind of like group therapy of sorts, is the framework of it. Um, in addition to that, you're given particular scenarios and asked to say how you would react in those. And what's interesting is in some of these tests, you know, if you check, you know, th- there is only one cro- proper way to react to them. And if you check the wrong answer, then you know, you have to retake the test because it's very prescriptive.
0: Before we end, I want to circle back to where we began, which is your personal story. As a woman of color, an immigrant, and a researcher, an academic, how has your experience of life informed your view of diversity?
3: What I would say is Through all my journeys, what I've come to realize is that people are individuals. They're more than any category that you can fit them into. And so my idea of diversity is to, you know, if we suspend these categories, um, we recognize that they have or they influence how people think. But if we begin to really engage with people as individuals, we'll do a far better job of diversity and inclusion than we're doing right now by using these categories that we try and fit people into. People are so much more than these categories.
2: In the decade plus, you've been living in the U.S. and working in academic institutions. You've seen some things change in directions that alarmed you and continue to alarm you. Are you worried about the future?
3: Very. Um, I'm very worried about the future of education in um, the US. The logic of the market comes to dominate how we do everything within the university. So this corporatization of the university is is really manifesting itself in this moment with the customer is always right logic. So what you hear a lot of administrators saying, and I understand the pressures. I don't think administrators are bad people. But they're, they're responding to, to the pressures from students and their demands for diversity by resorting to diversity training, knowing full well that they don't work and the evidence doesn't support it. A logic of what sells and what you know panders to the customer is taking precedence over the idea that we are educators and we are in the business of changing minds by exposing them to different ideas.
0: I'm going to push back on one thing. Sure. Yes, I, I, the, I'm concerned about where education is going, but I remember my own background as and as an old guy, I went to a university that was avowedly Marxist um, in at the University of Sussex in in, in the UK. And at the time, uh, the student body was seized by opposition to the Vietnam War. Uh, they were very left-wing. Uh, I remember thinking, I'm just a moderate socialist, and I was way off on the right. Uh, the, univers- the, the, the professors were, were left-wing. The, uh, the, there were certain things you were not allowed to say. Um, very much what you're talking about. And yet, I know a whole bunch of my colleagues who were former Marxists. What have they become? Capitalists. They became bourgeois. They became all of the things that as kids they they loathed. So I'm not quite so worried about this as you are.
3: I'm not worried about the students. That's not where my worry comes from. As I said, I think students need to experiment, they're trying on different hats, they're learning. I'm worried about institutional responses and the fact that the institution is now reneging its responsibility to educate in favor of serving the customer and whatever they want. I find that it is the institutional response that is irresponsible and that is what is worrying.
0: me. Amna Khalid, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It?
3: Thank you for
2: having me. So Richard, you have a recommendation this week and it happens to be something that was one of the Oscar contenders.
0: Yeah, in fact, it's an Oscar winner, um, Soul, which is an animated movie from Pixar, uh, and it won for Best Animated Feature. It's about a middle school teacher, Joe Gardner, who seeks to reunite his soul and his body after they are accidentally separated. Just before his big break as a jazz musician, a delightful film with a lot of humor and wonder and an escape. Can you imagine? I mean, there were so few Oscar contenders that were actually an escape for audiences. I thought that, you know, after the pandemic, perhaps as a way of getting people back in the movie theaters, Hollywood would come up with more escape movies, of more movies to delight us, rather than just movies that, well, sometimes kind of make us feel bad.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there was a there was a historic collapse in the audience for the Oscars this year partly i think cuz people just are tired of being lectured at both in the movies that get made and when and the the actors condescending to the american public uh, and very few people saw a lot of the movies that were nominated soul sounds like a great one for people to catch up with if they haven't seen it yet
0: in the past year Many of our conversations in America have been about race, much of the passionate response to the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other victims of police shooting. I think they've been long overdue, and I've been interested in the civil rights movement, but until quite recently, I didn't think about race as a personal matter. I guess because I didn't have to. I mean, when I drove too fast as, as a young person and was pulled over by the police, I never thought that how I was treated had anything to do with my skin color. And when my wife and I were turned down for a house that was sold to somebody else, I didn't think, again, that... that because i was white that 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 was a result of of me not getting that house so i'm glad that we are having this national conversation about race and and sexism too in ways that we didn't a few years ago but i think we need to make progress in how we discuss these things
2: yeah and this is where amna khalid's perspective is so important because I think what she sees is that where a very valid and overdue conversation about race and bias in our society, she sees that it has, has evolved into something very different in the way that these conversations are set up to follow some very strict rules of what you're allowed to talk about, what you're not allowed to talk about. And in fact, I think she's almost been a little too polite about this concept of critical race theory. Uh, it, this is something that is more than uh, just a an effort to establish openness and fairness and, and lack of bias. This is a, a, an ideological framework, which is actually quite restrictive.
0: I think if it's one of a number of theories or n- ways to think about race, then it's helpful, but if it's the only way to think about race, then, then it isn't. I mean, I, I I was talking about you know Marxism when I when I was a young student, and that was the way to explain the world for so many people on college campuses, especially in England at the time.
2: Yeah, and here too. But I want to push back on that point, Richard, because you know you've mentioned this before on the podcast that a lot of these 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 college Marxists you knew all—they grew up to be stockbrokers and stuff. Well, not all of them. You know, a lot of that movement, though, people went into academia. They went into uh, to various activist groups, and Marxism evolved through the 80s and 90s to an ideology that didn't really talk about class so much, but they took the same framework and applied it to identity, you know, race, sexual orientation, gender, but it maintained that underlying I- idea of Marxism that your group is what's important to you. It, you, and you really can't think for yourself. Your thinking is determined for you by the group you're in. This modern ideological uh, apparatus that we, we know is critical race theory, although it has a lot of other elements, is just as, as one note as the Marxism of your youth. And it's but it isn't just an idea that people toss around when they're in college. It's getting built into the institutions, as she says. I think she's recognizing it's quite dangerous. And I think it's part of a very worrisome trend.
0: I see it differently. We're having a discussion about problems with dogma and theories from the left that attempt to counter widespread racism and sexism. We didn't talk about those things nearly enough in the past. Progressives are right to push for change, action is overdue, and it's perhaps inevitable that the pendulum will swing too far in one direction as passion drives much of the response. By the way, we've also seen a crisis with dangerous populism and dogma on the right. In this conversation, however, I'm glad to be living at a time when I'm more aware of the pain and suffering caused by racism than I was in the past.
2: I, I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of the conversation, but I think the, the point that she's making, the way it's applied in these training sessions and as a, as an ideology, the critical race theory is not uh, about transcending bias. It's a new form of bias. It's a very rigorous form of bias. So it's not just, oh, the pem- pendulum swings a little too far and then we come back to the middle. This is a a broad, sweeping new way to look at the individual in society. It's different from the main conversation about about racism and and sexual harassment, similar issues. I don't think it's bad because its roots are in Marxism. I I think it's bad because it's dehumanizing. It devalues the individual and the capability of the individual to make their own intellectual judgments and moral judgments.
0: I think we'll have to Agree to differ on this one. Uh, It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer and sound designer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening.
4: This podcast is part of The Democracy Group.